What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Today's episode, we have got on a fantastic guest. He's got a lot of insight, and this is going to be a mind-blowing conversation. He is a data scientist. He is a demographer, and he also made a very interesting but scary documentary called Birth Gap. And this is Stephen J. Shaw. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Zuby. It's a real pleasure to be here. No doubt. So, Stephen, I've done a very brief intro there, but please tell people a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, I'm originally from the UK. I've lived in the US for the best part of 15 years before moving to Japan, Tokyo, six years ago. I moved to Japan to research birth rate decline. It seemed to be the right place to be, given Japan's long-term low birth rate. I uh, run a company doing data analytics. That's my profession. Um, and eight years ago, I saw really scary data about birth rates across Europe, which I didn't know about and knew a little bit about. But when I saw how precipitous this is, I, I decided someone's got to research this and write a book. My son told me, Dad, no one reads books these days. You've got to make a documentary. And somehow, magically, I met the right people at the right time, and, and it happened. Awesome, man. What was it that you saw that set off the alarm bell that made you want to pursue this issue to the extent that you have over the years? Uh, data in Germany, very specifically. I knew a little bit about low birth rates, of course, in Japan. Most people are aware of that, I would say. Uh, I knew about Italy and Spain to a point. Uh, the birth rate problem there long-term had been blamed on youth unemployment, uh, high levels of youth unemployment, and that seemed reasonable. No one was talking about low birth rates in Germany ever. And I get to work with some uh, industry leaders, um, often in the automotive industry, often a very German-focused industry, of course. And I knew that those executives weren't talking about this either, about how the future of Germany you know, will not just be a, a Germany with fewer car buyers, but fewer people to, to work in plants, et cetera. And what scared me most was the realization that, that really at that time, 2016, no one knows about this. No one knows that this is not a localized threat, that this is, and of course, I looked at other countries, I saw this is almost everywhere in Europe. UK and France, not quite so much at that time, but they're catching up fast now. So it was just a realization no one understands how significant this is. And the impact it's going to have on future generations, well, young and old uh, in future. Yeah, man, there's a lot that we're going to get into here. Because the thing is, it's not simply the fact that most people are unaware of this issue, or if they're aware of it, they're certainly not talking about it. It's the fact that people think the complete opposite is the issue. That is the popular mainstream narrative and has been my entire life. And I would assume for a couple of decades, perhaps before that, you hear a lot of people talking about overpopulation, particularly stemming from the environmental movement. And you're hearing very few people talking about the opposite. I think Elon Musk is probably the biggest and most famous voice who talks about the potential demographic collapse and the impact of that. But you have many other prominent and influential people from academics to political leaders, to people in the media, celebrities, everyday people who are pushing the complete opposite narrative. So how is it that we've gotten it so wrong? Well, that really was also one of my, was a huge topic of curiosity for me. Why would it be, in my case, little me learning this for myself, um, you know, from raw data? Why, you know, in fact, one of the first things I did, uh, Brexit was going on in the UK at that time. 
And they phoned up several national newspapers and said, hey, you want to maybe run a story on birth rates in Germany and Italy and Spain? And, you know, there's a story there that the British people should be aware of in terms of what it looks like for the future of Europe. And I remember one told me, look, everybody knows this. Birth rates are happening. It doesn't matter. There's too many people in the world. And I didn't get anywhere in the media. So you know, why is it? You know, it became clearer and clearer. Um, and I would say this is more than an opinion because it's clear and clear that there are ideologists out there. And the reason I believe that's factual is that they never change. They never update their their data sets. They never update what they're saying. They're saying the exact same thing now they were saying in the 1960s. Um, they don't say, for example, hey, Japan or South Korea or Italy, you've done enough now. It's time to kind of think of stabilizing again. They just want people to have fewer and fewer and fewer children globally everywhere. And that becomes an ideology when you're not prepared to update your worldview based on changing circumstances. Um, who's driving that is interesting. Um, you know, part of it's in the system. You know, part of it is baked in because so much of the education system, as I found out, in the US, there's an organization that has trained 50,000 high school teachers who teach 3 million high school uh, kids every year. Basically, it's in a, in the entire you know, class level of whatever grade they're taught are taught from this one organization. And that organization can be traced back to Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Ball. They still exist. And they only talk about growth since 1800. They stop there. They don't bother telling you, and I know this because I interviewed the, the CEO for the documentary, uh, they think it's just not their thing to tell people that actually everything's about to change. So there's ideologists out there. It's a compelling story. Too many people, scary, you know, in today's world, it seems to be we focus on the scarier things, uh, whether they're you know, based in truth or, or, or not. And, uh, you know, I think the media has been pulled into it. When you see some of the things that get published and you look at the actual evidence, the reports, the academic side of things, I could give you many examples. Um, but there, there's, a, there's an industry out there. Maybe it's a cottage industry, but they're very successful about making people think that they're part of the problem if they're going to have kids uh, and they should have fewer children. It's just, it's, it's appalling. I mean, to be honest, that is one of the meanest things anybody in this planet can do. Tell someone else how many kids to have. Um, you know, it's, 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 people shouldn't be telling individuals to have more kids or to have kids if you don't want them. That's equally appalling. There should be no co coercion. It's a personal choice. And then kind of polluting the airwaves with just false narratives it's 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 mm -hmm. part of the reason i'm keeping going yeah you said something there that's interesting you said a lot of stuff there that's interesting um i would have to push back on one point go on which is that i don't think that there's a moral equivalent equivalency between telling or encouraging people to have children versus doing the opposite because i think one of them is pro-human and one of them is anti-human this is not saying people should be uh forced or bullied or you know have some type of law or something like that to kind of force them into uh force them into fatherhood or motherhood but um i think that those different mindsets come from different very different places i would say that in any successful culture anywhere in the world um religious or irreligious up until five minutes ago it was always the case that there is pressure on every generation to create another generation has that been done in some bad ways yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> there are people who've take, taken that a little too far. But I think that generally speaking, that is good 
and is necessary because we as human beings, we all live in a culture. And the truth is most people do what the cultural norms are, whatever that may be. So if you have a cultural narrative telling people that it is selfish or it's bad for the environment or it's terrible or you're a bad person or whatever, if you reproduce, if you choose to pass on your genetics and keep the species going, um, I think that is a, I think that's far, far worse than the opposite. I think the, uh, the opposite can, I think the opposite comes from a very good place. It can be, it can be overbearing, but I'd say that that is more the exception rather than the rule. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so I do have a perspective on this, and for me, it's actually quite an important one. I actually came up with a terminology because a lot of people were being labeling me, uh, you know, pronatalist, or they're, you know, I was called feminist and anti-feminist in the same week, and I don't like labels. Yeah, so I came up with this term, pan-natalist, and because it's my term, I get to define it. So a pan-natalist is someone who supports those who want to have children to have the children that they want to have. Um, and to enable that in terms of governmental policies or whatever it, it, it is, but equally protects those, I use that term, who really don't have the desire to have children. I mean, one reason for that is that they'd probably not make great, great parents. Um, but I, th- I think where the nuance might be different um, is when you look at uh, you know real data, there's a lot of really flimsy surveys out there that kind of are part of this ideological problem that twists the truth. But if you look at real data, somewhere around 92, 93, 95% of women either are mothers or want to become mothers, you know, under, under 35. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually a very small minority who simply never get that desire. And in making the documentary, I sat down with five of those women who had never had the desire and had no regrets. And you know, one was a school teacher. In fact, two of them, I think, were school teachers. Um, you know, they're giving to the communities. I think, oftentimes, in other ways. And because it is a smaller group, thankfully to me, we don't have to put ourselves in a position of of trying to guilt these people. In fact, that will backfire, I believe, um, because you know, quite quite rightly, they they will say it's not for them. That's how I view it. But the reality is, if the ninety plus percent of women who want children were having the number of children they wanted, we wouldn't be in this situation. You know, we're only in this situation because of a huge increase of what I call unplanned childlessness. People who intended to become mothers, but life got in the way. But that's where the the documentary gets to. And that was, uh, you know, I, I think I need to talk, um, you know, more boldly than I have in the past, but no one had researched that before. No one had identified the importance of unplanned childlessness in tipping us into this position of below replacement fertility. Yeah, I want to get into a lot of that. See, when I talk about the culture, I think one of the big problems is that statistic you said, which is maybe between, let's say, 5 to 10% of women genuinely not wanting to have children. I think we live in a society and a culture where people are led to believe that that number is more like 30 to 50%. That's true. When it's at, yeah, when it when it's it's absolutely not, right? There are there are exceptions to everything, right? We know this and I think one of the big issues we're having particularly in the west and it can make conversations quite difficult sometimes is there's this I call it the sort of obsession with exceptions. There's always a oh, an immediate wanting to to jump to the you know you might have a situation where it's 95 five and people want to spend all the time talking about the five rather than addressing 
the 95. I, I recognize, look, human beings are extraordinarily diverse. There's 8 billion people out there. You can't really make any, you know, if I say that, hey, you know, people right. have 10 fingers, someone's going to jump out and say, oh, well, you know, actually, there's some people who are born with eight fingers or sometimes someone loses a hand. And I, I recognize that, but I'm always like, can we, let's focus on the 90 to 99 percent. And then, yeah, of course, look, we live in a if you live in a free society, even in an unfree society, um, no one is really trying to like make the, the idea that someone's trying to like force people to have children is not really a thing. It's a bit of a straw man. Um, yeah. Yeah. There can be pressures, but no one is like out there trying to make a law that's mandating that people, you know, have children. That's not really a position. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, well, you know, arguably it, it may come to that in s some countries. I, I, uh, certainly that's not the case anywhere right now. But there, I mean, there, well, there are situations. Iran has uh, a very low birth rate that shocks a lot of people. Uh, I believe it's 1.6, 1.7, certainly in Tehran. Uh, and two, three years ago, they banned vasect vasectomies. So there can be ways that, you know, states do, um, you know, endeavor to manipulate the, the, their population, which I think we, we need to be guarded against. But your core point is absolutely right. Most people think that the majority of childless people, men and women, had either medical issues or planned to be childless. It, it is absolutely not true. So in those nations that have been going through long-term low birth rates for decades, uh, much of Europe, Japan, uh, around four out of five childless people had intended, wanted, hoped for a family. That's 80%. Yeah. And that fits with academics. It fits with the desire that 90% plus people do want children. The US right now, if I could just comment, because I've had pushback, because in the US, people are saying, well, that's not the case in the US. But the reality is, childlessness is quite a new thing in the US. It was triggered around 07, 08. Childlessness before the mortgage crisis shock. And I do find crises a major trigger in, in changing societies. In the U.S., it was around 15% of women were childless. Today, the societal level, as I measure, is heading towards 37%. And it's not quite measured that way yet because there's a lot of women, late 30s, early 40s, and you're still hoping to be mothers. And a few will. But if you look at the trans reality, we, we, we can estimate really quite accurately that the really a, a small minority of that group ever will. Um, so my, my point is in some countries are going through the transition. They haven't quite, you know, uh, been able to understand the levels of childlessness working through their systems, such as the U.S. But it, there was a great, your core point is right. This is probably the most surprising thing in the documentary that actually mm -hmm. unplanned childlessness is driving low birth rates. That, that shocks a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. When I watched it, that was like a, like a mind blowing moment to me. Um, I've thought the overpopulation thing is a psyop my entire life. Um, I've always thought that the idea that, oh, there's too many people in the world or whatever. I've always thought that that's nonsense. I've always thought that that's complete nonsense. Um, well, 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 my I, answer, okay. can I just say, my answer to that is, is where, because if you come to Japan where I live, and, and you were to say that, you, you, you get a lot of stares because, you know, right now, hiring people, decaying communities, elderly people living in their own, uh, there's a lot of loneliness there's a lot of deep problems caused by this um so you have to tell me where you think there's too many people and then we can have a conversation and probably oh, what you wait sorry i think yeah. did you miss did you miss hear what i said oh go ahead so what, <laughs> what, 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 what did you think that i said 
Uh, well, well, oh gosh, you're, you're, I, I probably I got maybe, maybe you maybe you think I said the opposite of what I said. Okay, one more time. I said, that, I said that I think the 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 talk, all the talk about overpopulation. I said I think it's a psyop, and I've thought that for decades. I think. Uh, yeah, no, no, I, I did not. I I didn't phrase it well. I wasn't responding okay. to you. I was saying when people ask me that question, and people were to say oh. to me, "There's too many people on the planet," you know, I just say, well, "Where?" You know, tell me yeah. where it is. Is it Europe? No, I don't think so. Is it, you know, yeah. they'll probably say Sub-Saharan Africa, and then we can have a conversation because the only reason for that is it's a young continent, and in parts, there's still a lot of extreme poverty, and that's when people do tend to have larger families. But birth rates are falling across Sub-Saharan Africa at, at almost frightening rates. I mean, Ethiopia, Malawi, families are having one fewer child every decade. Um, so Africa's on the same path. So you can't just say there's too many people. That's like trying to close down a conversation rather than actually get into the nitty gritty. So. Do you know where a lot of this conversation comes from, I think, um, that belief of overpopulation? Because I've noticed a trend, and this is totally anecdotal, but mm. I'm sure somebody could actually do some type of survey on this if they wanted to. Mm. I have found that the majority of people who seem to really believe this, this includes people that I've I've met and had conversations with, it's always people who live in like LA, New York, London. It's people who live in like very densely populated, very highly populated cities who have this view. It's never people who live in Arkansas or who live in uh, Devon or who live in Cornwall. Or it, I, I've noticed this trend. If I talk to people from London, they're maybe the majority of people, if this topic comes up, they're always like, of course there's too many people because in their day-to-day -day life, there's some type of cognitive bias, right? Because in yeah. your own environment, I mean, you could make an argument that London is overpopulated. You can make an argument that Beijing or Tokyo or L.A. or New York, you could make an argument that makes more sense that these places are overpopulated. You look at the traffic, I, I, you look at rush hour. Um, but then if I you agree. fly across the USA and you look down, you know, <laughs> you, you, the, the country is empty. I mean, you could fit the whole world in Texas. Yeah, so so it's uh, at best it's vastly overly simplistic to say there's too many people and your point in urbanization is right so one of my own uh, uh this is a prediction but i've seen it happening whereby even in communities or countries where birth the total population is shrinking and population japan's been shrinking for 10 or more years people still gravitate towards the urban areas that will always be the case in fact i think more and more people will be attracted to more attractive what i call magnet towns within a region or the one area where young people want to live where there's still you know a, a bank open if we need banks or there's a you know there's a car servicing station etc whilst the other towns in in that area may decay now those are still going to be you know urbanized areas so if you're living in that bubble you will never see the reality of what's happening you know probably not very far away yeah and also if you think of where these ideas come from these are also the centers these are the idea factories right this is where lots of academia is this is where the media is this is where lots of politics is taking place and so on so you get i think you get a heavy urban liberal skew when it comes to the narratives that are out there, those are really the voices that you're hearing. I mean, the media centers in the UK, very obviously it's London. Um, yeah. In the US, it is primarily LA, New York, maybe some San Francisco, maybe some Chicago. So that sort of worldview gets put upon the entire country or upon the entire world. And I think sometimes people draw very flawed conclusions off that. I mean, you, you can see the same, I mean, 
I've seen people talking about how it's impossible or, you know, how difficult it is to, you know, um, make a living if you're only, um, how hard it is to survive on a hundred thousand dollars a year. And of course this is coming, you know, I've seen this on Twitter, right. And people are all agreeing. And then I'm looking at where they all live. It's San Francisco, LA, New York, whatever. And I'm, you know, they're like, can, no. can the average, yeah, can just... the average American live on a hundred thousand dollars a year? And you know, anyone yeah. who's not from those spots is like, what are you even, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Like, the idea you can't live on a hundred thousand a year is sounds, it won't sound bonkers to someone in LA. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in San Francisco, but it sounds completely insane to anyone else. Almost and again, else more. I, I think the ideologists have fed on this. You know, it's easy to present people who are living in cities, urban areas as, you know, that, uh, someone, I think it was Bjorn Lomberg said recently at the event, like, we, we seem to like living on top of each other. We seem to like cities. We, you know, we, we, we do it. And, and therefore, for, we will continue to do this. Urbanization is always going to be there, even through those times of population decline. So the, 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 well, it's not, I, I, one of the comments I, I do get is, oh, it's going to be great. And there's so few people, rush hour will, be gone and everything will be so nice you know we'll be able to stretch out for once that's not going to happen you're just going to have decaying communities literally with too much housing and often lonely older people living there uh, and the same urbanization issue so it doesn't change that at all yeah absolutely for for the people who are surprised by the talk of underpopulation or who hold the opposite position can, can you explain what the potential problems are here? Because sometimes even if people do accept the numbers and they can see the trends in demographic, either they think it's good or they're just blasé about it. They're not really thinking about what that means for yes. the society, for the economy, for the nation and world as a whole. So can you explain what some of the potential threats and dangers are? Yeah, gosh, and they're vast and they're quite scary. Um, I'll put one on the table because I want to come back and talk about it if, if we if we can. Uh, war. You know, I think there's going to be uh, instabilities between nations that we haven't seen. Or maybe we're starting to see uh, currently. Clearly, we are. But you know, the idea that these nations are going to shrink um, and that there won't be agitations or distractions caused by leaders maybe deciding to look at a neighboring country as a way to kind of take attention away from internal problems. So, so that is a real threat to me. In fact, that was my first thought when I saw the countries that are currently going through population decline the most. Uh, you know, and, and going back, you know, a few decades to you know World War Two, it's a, it's these fragment lines may develop again. I certainly hope not, but I want people to be open and aware that that's a possibility. So hopefully, it doesn't happen. But if you look at the socio and economic issues around this, I mean, th there's nothing that will not be impacted. I mean, it, it, literally, I, I can't imagine any aspect of our life now that will function the same with not just fewer people but shrinking people. So the most obvious one is supporting our elderly. In the UK, I, uh, statistics quite recently that uh, it must be the same in many places, but 60% of total healthcare costs, NHS in the UK, go on the over 75s. Well, the over 75s aren't going anywhere fast, and that's a good thing. We all want to live longer. Um, but as we have a shrinking worker base, um, though that shrinking worker base still has to support those 75-year-olds, and, you know, it takes a long time for that to kind of work through the system. And where I think younger people sometimes may not quite fully understand that if birth rates stay the same, 
Yes, there's going to be fewer of them, but there'll be fewer of the next generation too. So they're going to have the same problem as the current you know, elderly generation. So simply paying for pensions, uh, often people, again, think state pensions, the paid in all their working life, perhaps, that that money is for them when they retire. No, that money goes to pay current retirees. You're going to be dependent on the next generation of taxpayers to pay your pension. So healthcare, pensions, and then housing, uh, you know, there will be too many houses. It's already happening you know, in many places across Europe and Japan. And certain places in the U.S. too, I've seen you. Know, I, I spent a lot of time in Detroit, Michigan. It's a great template. Different reasons the population fell from 2 million to about 700,000 there. And, you know, the city ended up going bankrupt because it couldn't afford to maintain the streets, the housing, the services. Uh, and what I saw in my time there was this patchwork quilt of streets that would have, you know, half the houses. Well, it was less than that, actually. It was a quarter, a third of the houses occupied and the rest literally derelict, just, just decaying away. That brings crime. It brings vermin. It brings just not for a very happy place to, 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 to want to be. So Detroit for me is a template as to how to imagine the future and all of these places. So that, that's partly economic. It's also social because, uh, you know, they're, they're linked. You know, social care needs a tax base to be able to, to, to justify it. Now, for corporations, for companies, for employers, um, and therefore staff, you have a growth problem because I mean, I went to a business school. Every MBA teaches you about growth. It's, it's, it's the key to everything is finding growth markets, finding the right level of risk within that growth. You know, you as a, podcaster and a rapper you're looking for growth in terms of audience numbers stabilization might be the same but that's you know that starts to change the mindset you know should i invest in this next oh, I use the microphone or this whatever should i be traveling so much if you know the numbers are stabilizing compared to if they're growing you you see things start to shrink and the mindset changes completely you become completely risk averse so the idea that that companies are going to want to continually invent new products to invest in research and development, to invest in new markets, to you know train younger staff necessarily rather than just retaining what they have. The dynamics are going to be very different there. Yeah, I believe there's there's solutions to this. I mean, it's going to uh, solution is not the right word. I mean, it simply will be the world will be different. And and mm. uh, from a corporate point of view, it'll be a case of who can survive the longest. It, it literally will be a numbers game. You know, if there's ten cafes in the town this year, there's probably only going to be nine next year, and maybe you know, ten years from now there'll be only four or five, whatever the timeline is, of course. And do you invest to make your cafe the best cafe that people want to go to, so you stay there longer, but you've spent a lot of money? You know, they better come if they don't. You know, your competitor who's smarter. So the business dynamics are going to change. And then just for young people, I, I worry about um, communities. We've lost community now in so many of these places. There's such loneliness. Uh, well, loneliness is going right through society. And in the documentary, I saw, saw a tragedy of a um, you know a, a elderly community if it, in. in Tokyo, uh, with just so many people um, aging alone, but for young people too, there's a lot of loneliness in society. So it's it's hard for me to think of anything that benefits. Even the environment won't benefit for decades. You know, only eight percent of consumption uh, it, it goes to under thirties. You know, so it's you know it, it would take 
decades to have any impact on, on consumption. So the idea that this this is a, a positive thing, and you know, if the environmental concerns are right, we need to fix it a lot quicker than the decades that population decline would take. It's a very inefficient way to handle that that that, that, that situation. So um, you know, in all my time talking to people, I still haven't come up with anything positive here. Yeah, there's a lot of problems. I think that people also fail to account for the fact that pretty much everything in the economy is driven based on growth, right? So, you know, you brought you brought up housing. I know you even started to get into this topic because you were, if I remember correctly, you were looking at uh, forecasts for, you know, car retailers and things like that. Yeah. But if you think of every every single market, it's all it's all growth based. There's all the assumption that, okay, well, the population grows and there's a demand that's at least consistent, but slightly growing. And that next generation helps to support the older generations. People age out, the young ones come up. But once you start to get that inverted pyramid, and when you consider the exponential, well, in this, in this case, not growth, but uh, decline, then there's this precipitous fall off, which I think right now, because the world's population is still growing and because many nations' populations are still growing, it seems like everything is fine. It seems like, okay, yeah. nothing to be concerned about because people are not thinking about the median age and the impact that's going to have on things you mentioned, you know, pensions, social security, something like the, the NHS, immigration. That's a big one, right? Because at the moment, in many nations, the idea is like, okay, well, let's just keep, let's keep just bringing in more and more immigrants from wherever to, you know, bolster the economy and keep the numbers up. But it's this sort of, with that causes its own potential frictions and problems. And yeah, it's, um, it's yeah, quite it's a mess. And it's interesting because I'm not some, I'm by nature, I'm not, I'm not a worrier at all. I'm like 0% neuroticism. Um, I don't worry much about many things at all. But when I think about genuine things I'm concerned about with the world and with humanity, this particular issue in recent years has been something where I'm like, okay, I think this is, this isn't like a, you know, do, doomsday massive, you know, warping of the data and trying to come up with the worst case. It's just like, okay, well, the numbers are telling a very clear picture. And as you said, the main thing is people need to be aware of this. So yes. at a minimum, at a minimum, there need to be there needs to be mitigation. There needs to be thinking of, okay, yes. how are we going to run the economy? How are we going to run certain programs? Where is our society and our culture and our nation going? Yes. If the average age becomes if the median age becomes 10 years older than it is, or yeah. if we've got more people over the age of 60 then we have people under the age of 20. What does that mean for our society? All these kind of things. It's like, I know you're putting it on people's radar, but it seems like by the time maybe it hits the mainstream at this current rate, it's going to already, it's, it's just going to be too late if people don't sort of wake up to it earlier. I agree with all of that. I actually listened to your podcast with, with Elon a little earlier, and I was pleased he made the point about he worries that there's going to be this you know malaise that people are going to give up and maybe have even fewer children. And, and that's a fundamental concern for me. And it's one of the reasons I've stayed in Japan, because I think Japan has the potential uh, to show other countries 
a possible way out and that's me being a real optimist by the way but it is possible but 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 here's what has to happen this solution is going to take 50 years it's going to take at least one generation to stabilize birth rates in these countries and then it's going to take another generation for the the greater number of relative children to grow up and enter the workplace and the larger number of relative older people to to pass on now if people understand this is a 50-year problem it, you have to wait for 50 years for it to get better. Um, you will start to see it getting better after probably 20. Now, if you're a teenager today or in your 20s even, maybe your 30s, that's a good time horizon for your retirement period. I mean, I, I'm beyond that. So, you know, uh, I, my point being, I think younger people are invested in this enough if they can see a way forward, if they can have hope year by year, decade by decade, um, and that hope has actually come in the conversations I've had from young people who are quite frankly utterly shocked uh, by the scale of this problem, shocked by unplanned childlessness. To, to, you know, we don't tell people that, by the way, not only do you have to study really hard and establish your career, you probably also need to think about meeting someone. And uh, I'm going to throw a stat in here. It's a little bit off topic, but just to, for context, uh, in all the countries are researched, only half of women turning 30 without a child ever become mothers. And it's not just fertility. It's not having a partner. It's having a breakup. It's, it's waiting, waiting, waiting to get the career in place. Once you tell young people stats like that, I can see them you know, thinking, well, wait a minute. I need to prioritize. So I do worry about the long term. I worry about the state of societies. Um, but I think we can actually, you know, if we have a collective conversation, I mean, the solution here is well, immigration is not the solution. It is not a solution for this. It's a temporary plaster to this. Uh, you know, it's a, 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 a you know, um, from the UK. Band so, bandit, that's the one. So, yeah. Yeah. so, and why is that? Because immigrants, you know, they default to by second generation the same number of children as the the, the host nation that. That's evident because look at countries like the U.S., well below replacement level, but Germany, which has had you know high levels of relative immigration going back to well fifty years or more. This, these countries have very low birth rates. It's not just Japan, which tends not to have immigration. Immigration, therefore, is something that you need to replenish every single year. And immigrants get old, and of course, need supported. So you know that never ends. If immigration is your solution, you can never stop that. And you're yeah. really deferring and, and it to it, some. And it, and it creates its own problems. Yeah, right? it, we're being honest, which you know people well, get uncomfortable talking about it. But this whole no, conversation no. is uncomfortable. But I, 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 one of the most surprising ahead. things to me is, is another uncomfort I had never thought about until I went to Nepal. And I went to a university to talk about population dynamics, and all I wanted to talk about primarily was migration, people leaving Nepal, and what it's done to communities there, because all the young talent is leaving, and so. That was a whole side to immigration that I, I you know, selfishly, I think I, uh, mm -hmm. I, I might say that we, we're just not considering it all. What is the impact on these other countries? Oh, um, brain, drain, brain drain is a huge issue. Our podcast today is sponsored by The Wellness Company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from the Wellness Company is Spike Support. 
Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. Yes. I mean, my, my, my family background is, uh, we're originally from Nigeria. So, you know, I'm British and Nigerian. And if I look at Nigeria, I mean, that is definitely one of the problems. The country has many issues, but brain drain is a real issue because mm-hmm. if you are raised in Nigeria and you go to school and you go to university and you get a good degree, sure, some people stay, but a lot of people are like, okay, I'm off to the UK now. I'm off to the USA. I'm off to Canada. I'm off to the Gulf countries wherever it is. So you have this consistent thing where many of the most educated, most competent, smartest people are constantly leaving. And great. In the USA, they're like, oh, awesome. We're getting more Nigerian doctors. Fantastic. We're getting all these smart programmers from India. Great. We're getting all these people, whatever it is. But again, if you think of it more holistically on both sides of the situation in both the new country and the original country, you've now potentially, again, not, not everything's an, an, an issue with this, right? I'm big on, I'm super pro-migration, right? I think people should generally- Yeah, I'm an immigrant myself, so yeah, yeah. yeah. I think people should generally go where they're treated best. But um, at scale, some of these things are not sustainable. Then you have, you know, considerations about culture and integration and assimilation and language and all of these other things. And, um, and, you know, I think when it comes to immigration as well, you know, we live in this funny time where people like to pretend things are just, you know, binary issues. I've generally found in most nations, like everywhere, most people are in favor of immigration within reason, right? If you, it doesn't matter the nation, if you just brought in, you know, 5 million, 10 million people in one year from foreign mm-hmm. countries, generally local people are not going to like it. If you did mm-hmm. that in Japan, the Japanese people won't like it. If you do it in England, people won't like it. You do it in Germany and so on and so forth. If it's slower and there's assimilation and you're bringing in good people who are not causing problems, most people agree. Yeah. Immigration is generally a good thing, but it's a matter of scale, speed and type. But as you said before, when it comes to this particular issue, at best, it's a very temporary solution and it has some serious trade-offs. I think there's another factor here as well, which is if I were a skilled uh, potential immigrant, um, probably already, but more and more, I'm going to be very choosy about which countries I would consider migrating to. So would I go to Italy right now looking at, you know, I mean, right now there's around 900,000 people aged 50 in Italy, less than 400 births. It's a huge birth gap, as I call it. You know, that you know, do I want to retire in Italy or would other countries be better? So, you know, it, 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 I, I can see countries bidding against each other 
to encourage, you know, a free car, free, you know, whatever it might be. The whole dynamics migration will, will change here. So again, just assuming that there's a tap that you can turn on at whatever level you think is appropriate. I, I don't like to tell any country or anyone what the right number of immigration is. I just like to point out it is not a solution. It's, you know, it's, it's a very, very temporary uh, thing that, that really almost distracts from the core issue here because mm. unless we get to replacement level, you know, there is no, there is no future. Is there any country that has fallen below replacement level for any decent amount of time and then recovered from that? And if so, who are they and what did they do? Uh, simple terms, no. But um, I got criticized. You know, someone always points out oh, Georgia did this for a time. And there are some small countries for a relatively small periods of time that, that fell below it. And usually there's a reason for it. Um, also during famines, wars, right after wars, you know, birth rates do go down. The difference there is that after, say, a war, plague, famine, whatever happened, society fundamentally hadn't changed. It just took a while for things to stabilize again. People went back to doing what they were doing before, which is having, on average, a certain number of children. Or, uh, so there's no societal change. What has happened now in the West and in the East, and it's really every continent, is there's a fundamental rewiring of society to do with when we have children. That's the core thing. We're delaying parenthood to beyond what our nature is able to, and life is able to you know, sustain. So, you know, one of the scariest things for me is there is no example at all of any society you can look at during prosperous times where you can say that could be a, a template. And you can even go back to the Roman era and you can find that speeches were, I mean, the Romans taxed childless people and those who had less than, I think it was two children at differing yeah. rates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, well, there's less records there by definition and academics debate over what the real demise of the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire didn't fall overnight. There wasn't a war and then they were done. They fizzled out over centuries. That's how civilizations end. And in fact, it's, what, it's what's happening. It's not a case of, you know, will we collapse? We are collapsing. We're in a collapse right now. Below replacement for us, a stay in time means collapse. It just takes quite a while for you to notice. And by that stage, you realize how far it's gone because there's so few people to have children at that point. Mm -hmm. And the risk there is that it, it, it continues. Yeah. I think one of the really difficult things with this, this issue and some other ones is to speak about it honestly. It requires potentially offending people or mm -hmm. potentially hurting people's feelings or getting into certain emotive topics, right? Like even when you just bring up certain statistics, mm -hmm. like that statistic you said of if a woman reaches 30 years old, then there is a 50, it's a 50-50, it's a coin yeah, toss statistically if yeah. she will ever become a mother. Yeah. Now that's one of those statistics where I don't want it to be true. Mm -hmm. Right. Other, other people, people don't want it to be true. It's very sobering and scary and also very different to what people have in mind. Mm -hmm. Because I think certainly in the West, I, I don't know, I doubt this is the case in places like Japan and South Korea, but there have been many popular yet false and I would say heavily destructive narratives and lies told to people. Um, I think that people believe that, I mean, for example, okay, take a very basic one. Just take actual fertility windows. Mm -hmm. People's perception of when and how easy it is for women in particular. Well, first, firstly, the fact that men and women have different fertility windows, 
right? Mm-hmm. Just that, just that fact. I didn't, I didn't invent biology. I mm-hmm. didn't make that the case. You didn't make that the case. This is just mm-hmm. the reality. Men and women, male, female, we have different fertility windows. Um, men can continue to father children for a lot longer. We can also father way more because we're making millions or billions of sperm a day, mm-hmm. whereas women, you know, one egg. Um, this is just biology. And then we have the, um, what was the other point that I was going to make? Again, just how this changes, how the possibility to say, get pregnant, carry a pregnancy to term, how these things change over right. age. Also, I think people overestimate and have been sold a lie about how effective certain technologies are. So, you know, you can talk to a woman who's, you know, 35 or whatever, and she says, oh, I'll just freeze my eggs. And then, you know, when I'm in my 40s, whatever, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll unfreeze them. I'll do IVF, whatever. Like, and and they'll, again, they'll point to exceptions. They'll say, oh, well, that woman had a child at 52. Oh, that celebrity got pregnant at 53, whatever, not realizing that these are exception cases. And I think ultimately this is, I think this does the greatest disservice to women in particular. Um, Men, you know, there's damaging damaging narratives for men out there, but I think for women in particular, at a minimum, this is not saying, hey, you know, you're 20 years old, you need to go out there and, you know, find a man and have babies or whatever. But it's like, people need to at least know. Yes. I would like for people to at least know what the facts are. At least if you're going to make a choice, make an informed choice. Look, these are the statistics. Let, let's be honest. These are the odds. This is the situation. You also have to consider that it takes time to find a person, <laughs> whether yes. you're a man or a woman, it takes time to, to find a person and see if you're compatible and make commitments and do all of the logistical things. And people don't think of this. I, I've, I've seen people saying things like, I mean, I, I, this isn't even a person I follow, but a few weeks ago, I saw a woman on Twitter saying that women her advice to young women is that they shouldn't shouldn't start thinking about marriage and children until they're at least 30. Mm-hmm. and i look at this and this is a tweet that's going around you know it's, it's getting lots mm-hmm. of likes and whatever and i'm just like that is yeah people don't know that is a crazy thing to say yeah. That, yeah. that's when you should start thinking about it yeah I'm like, okay you know some some people can do that and they'll be okay but what you're really doing is you are you know, and anyone who who takes that serious and takes that quote unquote advice, you are potentially dooming. I mean, if that were at scale, you're dooming millions, potentially billions of women to never becoming yes, mothers, you are, or having maybe only one or two children when maybe they would have liked to have three or four or five or whatever it is. And there's just so much of, I don't yeah. know how much of it is uh, ignorance and people just not knowing the facts, and how much of it is I'd like to think. The majority of it is that rather than something more sinister. Well, I think it's both, to be honest with you, because I think those, you know, that organization that places material in US uh, textbooks about population and only tells you about growth in the past, you know, the narrative has been controlled here. So why is it in our textbooks that we teach about biology and fertility, but we don't talk about fertility window? We tell people how not to get pregnant or or not to father a child. and that's important knowledge. But if that's important knowledge, why would it also not be important knowledge to know when it is more likely to have a child or to father or give birth to a child? Those are things that I feel are being concealed from young people. 
And I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't agree with that. I'm sure there are. The ideologists will, will come along, I'm, I'm sure, and come up with some reason for it because they don't want people to know this information. I'm quite sure. And, and again, my, my findings are quite counterintuitive that um, in all of these countries, women who have the first child um, going back to the 80s, uh, and even before in some countries, once you've had your first child, you're just as likely to go into two, three, four, five. The exception being South Korea, where people are starting families really late, Spain as well, actually. You know, so you do have an increase in one child families there, but everywhere else, having your first child, um, most people are getting to, I imagine, close to, to, to what they, and it's fascinating because it means through economic strife, through different policy changes, governments, whatever. Mothers are doing pretty much what they want to do. The challenge is getting to motherhood and delaying it beyond 30. Um, now, you, you said earlier, and I was going to cite this, and I heard yesterday of a friend of a friend of a friend who had a child aged 52. Those are the things you hear. Those are the things that make the media. Those are the things that are confusing us. And in the documentary, there's there's four fertility doctors who I interview, and they're all saying the same thing. This is crazy. This is the exception. The media's got it wrong. You know, I think they feel so much pressure. Of course, if you're a client, they have to work through and give you hope. But the odds get uh, low very, very fast. And it's just simply wrong that we're not educating young people in this men too by the yeah. way um, men overestimate the ability by the way to find a fertile woman you know you know the idea that we, we can technically do it and you know, have a child at any age almost now you're competing with a younger version of yourself for that woman who you know you know fortunately the the, the current version of me blows my 10 year junior <laughs> self out the water to be honest so um <laughs> well keep believing that <laughs> oh i know it's true it's true um do you, do you know one of the things that I think also stems from this is I, I think that or, or one of the reasons for this is I've noticed generally that, um, again, in the West, so this is not the situation necessarily everywhere, but I've noticed that people are um, maybe it's this sort of blank slateism. I've noticed that many people are very squeamish about acknowledging and talking about the differences between the two sexes. There's this idea that men and women are almost interchangeable and have the same timeline for everything and the same proclivities and interests and this and that. And again, people like to jump to the exceptions. It's like, oh, well, you know, there's what about this person? What about that person? And failing to just acknowledge, okay, look, this is how biology made us. This is how we are for many, many centuries and millennia this has been acknowledged and okay, so take something like even the fact that um, around the world, as far as I know, in every single country amongst married couples, amongst parents, I think in every country on average, the man is a few years older than the woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's always been the case as far as I'm aware. And there are reasons for that, right? From, from economics to biology to things. Yeah both sexes are attracted to and so on. But even something that simple and that blatant and that obvious, we're living in a sort of age where people are very sort of squeamish about that. Or they, you know, if a 35-year-old man has a 23-year-old girlfriend or is attracted to a 23-year-old, there's people who want to deem that problematic or pretend that there's something wrong with it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or if it's the flip side, or if it's, you know, a 20-year-old man with a 40-year-old woman, woman that's supposed to be viewed 
exactly mm-hmm. the same as if it, as if biologically it makes the exact same amount of sense when we all know that that's not true mm-hmm. right and no 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 one who is honest would struggle to understand you know why a 35 or 40 year old man would be attracted to a 20 or 25 year old woman right yeah actually it, it might make people squeamish some people well, not a lot of people but you know I, I just think that because people are uncomfortable with all these things it creates a lot of problems like for example i've even had um you know, I've, I've spoken to young women who talk, who talk about some of these things and they talk about how all these guys, you know, you might be talking to a, a woman who's, let's say, 24, 25, and she's talking about how the guys around her age, you know, they don't want to settle down and they're not serious about marriage and they want to be players and this and that. I'm just like, look, maybe no one else will tell you this, but I'm like, go, go for guys 30, like date guys 30 plus. Right? Yeah. They've got their heads screwed on more. They're going to yeah. be more willing to settle down. They're going to be more ready for marriage. And I also yeah. know this because I'm 37 now, but I know that when I was 25, I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. Even just in terms of my career, in terms of my finances, in terms of my ability to support anybody, I could, I'm struggling to support myself, right? How am I yeah. going to support a wife and a family and this and that now that I'm more established in my career and I've got some money in the bank and I've got this, it's like, okay, cool. Now I'm in, now I'm in this position. And I don't know. I just feel like if people spoke more honestly and expressed their thoughts, desires, concerns, all of these things just just more openly, both men and women, then there would be, I, I find it fascinating that you have this huge pool of young men talking about how it's impossible to find um, a worthy young woman. And then you have this giant pool of young women who are talking about how it's impossible to find a, a suitable man and, you know, oh, no one's interested. Yeah, yeah I, that, I don't know. There's, there's a clear mismatch. I, 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 um... I'm fortunate because I, I I get a lot of people who want to talk to me, and often they are younger women, younger men, older. You know, and you know, I hear all, all, all the stories. And I think people confide in me, uh, maybe in a way they mightn't do with even some of their their friends. And it, it, it's clear to me. I think it's a societal thing that in recent times we've narrowed that gap. I think men are between two and four years older than their partners typically today, but in the past that that was wider. And it would, you know, to be honest with you, well, I have three kids, so I, I, I'm not going to tell you what I advise them, you know, on a podcast, but put it this way, you know, if my daughter told me she had, she met someone five or even 10 years older, I would see positives in that, you know, you, you know, who you're getting, you know, you know where they're at. Um, uh, and they would like to have more time to I- invest in a, creating a stable family. Um, I'm not saying she'll probably hit me for saying that, but it's a generic <laughs> point. You know, I think we need to go back to thinking that way, but there's one other point as well about men. Cause this comments come up from, several women, which is that the idea, if they had a choice between dating a, a man it, over 40, so that, that was stated clearly, who's never been married and never had kids compared to someone who's divorced with one or two kids, they've all said, I'd rather have a divorced guy. He's serious. You know, he's been through, he's got experiences rather than this Peter Pan who's over 40. Uh, I'm not saying all women say that but it's, it's interesting it's come up several times um i think people start to question are you really you know suitable to settle down ever is it you simply want to be that single guy forever will you leave her you know that, that's yeah. a big thing for women so yeah, yeah no there's so many concerns i mean coming back to the the point about birth rates and people delaying family formation i think the thing that makes this all tricky is because you know we're, we really are at a unique time in human history the the convergence of all the different factors that we now have from technology to society to where we are with 
religion to where we are with um, house prices to just all of these things have just converged mm-hmm. at, at the same time mm-hmm. where the most fundamental and basic things that human beings do, which is coupling and mating, has become so something so simple has become mm-hmm. so complicated and difficult. So even if you are someone who has a more, let's say, traditionalist or conservative or you know religious mindset, you are still impacted by the societal and cultural and technological and monetary changes, right? Mm-hmm. So whether you're someone who's just like, doesn't care about all this stuff, or you're someone who thinks that this is extremely important, the truth is that it is it is harder. It's hard. It is harder to buy a house. It, well, firstly, I believe I think I can fairly say that there are fewer marriageable men and fewer marriageable women. Let's say under the age of forty than than ever before. Right? Boys are not being necessarily raised to be good husbands and fathers in many places. Women, mm-hmm. lots of girls are not being raised to be good wives and mothers. In fact, me even saying that a woman should be raised to be a wife will go out there and offend someone somewhere. Um, And so that's happening. And then you have all the financial concerns. Certain things have genuinely become more expensive, housing being one of the obvious ones. Um, So even those who do want to couple up and there's just so many, there's so many new barriers. You have all the existing ones and then you have a lot of barriers. And I think this is where, the the solution becomes very, very complicated. Um, How much of it is culture? How much of it is potential policies? Of course, you know, you could go out and build more affordable housing. I assume that would help. You could try all sorts of different things. Um, I have a couple ideas, which some people deem a little bit radical, but um, I think they're certainly worth considering. Um, For example, We're talking about how we're treating men and women exactly the same. I think it would make sense. And again, I'm not trying to force a law on somebody, but I think it would make sense for a lot of women to start their families first before pursuing all the elements of higher education, right? Maybe men too, but women in particular, right? I I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but you say that to some people and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, the patriarchy well, this and that. And I'm just like, yeah, they do. No, the, the, this, and I've this. But to me, it's, it's actually the nuance here. The important thing is just to make society more flexible so that those who do want to have children younger before they get into their yes. studies or career are able to do so and make it normal for people to start their career, say age 30, you know, it, it can happen today, but it's still, it's a risk. And, you know, uh, employers, yeah, let's say, yeah, you, you you study hard. You want to get on the career path. You want to get to a certain point. There's every incentive not to stop that path once you start. We need to make that much more flexible. And, and there are people. One of the, the, the most um, admirable young people I, I interviewed was a German doctor, age 22, who just had, had her first child while a medical student because she saw the doctors around and said that they end up childless. So I'm doing it now. She took a year out, find other mothers to kind of help with the, the, the burden, if you like, find a community. You know, pe- some people will do that. We need to make those options m- much more practical. Yeah, I think that should be much more normalized. I think, yes. the, you know, the idea that you, because if you think about it from, let's say, the age of four or five, like if you're going to do higher education, I mean, you can be in education for 20 years 20 years straight, just, just nonstop yep. from the age of five to the age yeah, of 25, 
Really? And I'm just like, why, why is that the default? Why is that the default model? I mean, yeah. I would imagine both of us have learned more since we became adults than we ever yeah. we when we continue to learn, you continue to do courses, you continue to read books and expand your mind. I mean, learning is really a lifelong process. Yes. So I think even in terms of some of the formalized institutions and degrees and things like that. It's like, oh, why does it have to be crammed into three years, right? Why does it have to be crammed in three? Four? Why can't you just extend this out over time and yeah, you can I, do a bunch of things at the same time? And I, I just think that would make, it, it would just make a lot more sense on multiple levels. Yeah, and it would give the opportunity for people to shift careers more easily too, because, you know, if you've already completed your three, four year degree and your major is, is X, you know, it's hard to say, well, actually, I want to do Y instead. But if we stretch out, if we make education more flexible, I think people will make final decisions as to how to orientate their career when they're in a better position to do so rather than age, what, 17, 18. Mm. How much do you think of a role um, declining religious belief? and adherence plays in all of this, perhaps in our own countries or even more internationally? Well, I mean, there's one fact that religiosity is linked with larger family sizes. Um, and it doesn't matter. It, it's to do with, you know, the people who are, how can they say, not just religion by wearing a badge or label of some sort, but they actually practice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, um, whatever the reason for that is, you know, we can speculate, but, you know, it's it's Mormons, it's the Amish, it's certain communities of, of Jewish Orthodox and certain Muslim communities and Christian communities. It's, 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 it seems to be pretty universal. Now, is religious religion the answer, therefore? I, that, that, no. I mean, to be honest with you, um, well, I can't say no, I'll offend some people. I, I think it's more fundamental and behind that. I think it's community. What religion brings is a sense of communities. And through communities, you have not only support, you know, if you want to become a parent, but you get to meet people, maybe trust people that are part of that community. Uh, inter intergenerational communities used to be really important in child raising to have the grandparents nearby, the neighbor, for example, um, who, who can help. So, you know, for me, it starts with community and whether those are religious communities or other communities, uh, I cannot I cannot see us solving this problem if we're left in our own little bubbles with a partner, having our one, two children without a trusted community to, to help us along. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess we, we will have to probably have some divergent perspectives on this, but I think a lot of this is an inevitable result of secularization. Perhaps. I think I think it's inevitable. I think it's it doesn't surprise me in a way. I'd be like, yeah, well, of course, because even the way that and I'm not saying that all or even necessarily most atheists have this have this viewpoint, but the general view of let's say the view and purpose of parenthood and children does tend to be viewed differently between religious and non-religious people, right? The idea that ch children are a gift from God and mm -hmm. that we're supposed to go out there and be fruitful and multiply, like that's actually something that is mm -hmm. that is written down that you're you're supposed to follow beyond just the community aspect, which is important, but that having that deep belief mm -hmm. that children are a gift, not a curse, because mm -hmm. I, I hear way too many people in society talking about children like this horrible curse. I mean, people use words like parasite even, or, you know, calling their own calling their own children or other people's children yeah. quite disturbing disturbing words um so I yeah i i, I think uh, yeah that's that's definitely 
there's so many factors that are that are going on. I think the um, and, uh, sorry, you, you you can jump jump in in a moment, but well, also yeah, sure. the view the view of the view of marriage is also linked to this as well, right? Because marriage and children, yes, they don't have to go hand in hand, but they generally do go hand in hand. So the more people become disillusioned with the idea of marriage, or there's lots and lots and lots of men in particular who are very afraid of divorce and divorce laws and all of these things. It's just like all these things are stacked up together and it's created an atmosphere where I think people's desires are still generally the same. I think these are very hardwired desires yes. that men and women right. have, right? Most people do want to couple yeah. up and they do want to have, you know, bring children into the world. But in my generation and the one coming up below, there's a lot of fear and skepticism and doubt and pessimism. And I think so many people also saw this not work in older generations or be dysfunctional and so on. So they kind of have those scars or they, mm -hmm. even from a rational perspective, just think, okay, they're looking at certain numbers and certain percentages and they're like, mm, this, I, I don't know about this, right? The, the mm -hmm. odds are not in my favor kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's like almost like the whole incentive structure has been inverted mm -hmm. where someone can make a very rational argument to not get married and not be monogamous and not bring children into the world and just dodge all of these potential responsibilities. And I, I see that. I see a lot of young women espousing those type of views. I see a lot of young men espousing those type of views, but a lot of those people deep down, they would still like to do the thing. They just mm -hmm. don't think that doing the thing is either, oh, either possible or wise. Do you kind of see what I mean? Yeah, so part two of the documentary, which isn't out yet, explores a lot of the personal lives of the people I met who are older, who don't have children. And you can see there's quite a lot of communities online. And the term that's used is grieving. You know, the people who grieve for the family they never hired. And this is a very deep grief. Um, and I wasn't expecting this. I mean, these emotions came out um, after a conversation about, you know, what people's lives and you know without probing i find that these people wanted to explain that they had actually planned their children more much more often than not and that's borne out by the data so the idea that this is something that well if i don't have kids it doesn't matter now there are again ideologists and even some academics being pulled in to support this uh out of, out of their you know area of expertise i've seen there's a lot of people who are invested in uh, oh I, I, the one thing i want to react to i don't think i've said this on a podcast before but when you talk about you know that i think you use the term harmful that the idea that ch children are negative or harmful there's this term out there and i rarely say it but i'll say it once child free the idea that we're using a terminology that implies that children are harmful and that this is all over the media it's in academia now i mean can you imagine you know, a teacher telling a six-year-old child who asks you know do you have children? If the teacher said, no, I chose to be child-free. I mean, what would that do to a child? The idea of free? Do, do my parents want to be free? You know, um, you know, and, you know, it's just not the right word. Free is used for things that are universally negative, like stress-free, worry-free, you know, disease-free, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're things that have a universal... Yeah, but you can't say free when the vast majority of people actually want to become parents. You say it's childless by choice and so if there's an appeal in this please call out anybody who tries to use what i call the cf term uh, i think it's abhorrent but yeah it's, it's another sign that your societies are leaning towards uh discouraging people 
from having families or, or even contemplating that they might be something that, that, that people want. And then they find out later that actually there's something missing in their lives. Yeah. What's interesting with it as well is on both sides, there is, a, and this is, this is not often discussed, but there's a contagion factor. I can say, so as a, as a 37, 37 year old man who does want to get married and absolutely wants to have several children, um, I can tell you that there is nothing that motivates and inspires me more to want that. It makes me desire it more than to see other people who have it and are happy. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest, that's the biggest motivation. I feel it as I travel for it to different cities and different nations, I can go to some, I can go to one place and I'm not seeing a lot of families and it's mostly single people or whatever. And you you know, the desire for me to have a family never goes away, but you don't think about it so much, Mm -hmm. but then you can go to somewhere else where there's tons of families and there's children running around everywhere. And you're just walking around, you're in a restaurant, wherever you are, you're just Mm -hmm. seeing families and you're seeing children and you're seeing fathers playing with their kids and you're seeing mothers pushing. And there's something very human and joyful about it, man. Like that's, that's what I want. That's what I want the next chapter of my life to be like. And I think that I, again, I found not statistically, but anecdotally, that people who have a strong desire to have families, especially to have big families and so on, they tend to come from that and have been surrounded by that and they see it a lot. And then the people who have the more skeptical or even anti-natalist view, they don't tend to be so surrounded by that. They don't see it often. Or if they see or hear about it, it's the horror stories. It's the dysfunction. It's the people saying, oh, no, I had kids and it messed up my life and this and this and this, right? The the kind of people who speak very negatively about it. So there's also this sort of contagion factor where actually if you can encourage this general mindset, then I think more people will do it. And then if you do the opposite, if you start really promoting the antinatalist messaging or you start promoting the idea that children, you know, mess up your freedom, uh, wreck your finances, make it impossible for you to pursue your dream, right? Just all the awful things. Then it naturally and rationally makes more people go, I'm not going to do that. Or you know what, if I'm going to do it, let me push that back another five years. Let me push that back another 10 years. So we all really affect each other. I mean, that is what a culture is. Yeah. I've had, well, more than one um, woman aged 50s i'm guessing um who had forms of yeah breakdowns after watching the documentary without children and there were you know people who had never spoken about this before uh, and what it was just just this it was this miss this emptiness that they were kind of suppressing in a way i'm not a psychologist and don't attempt to be but it was obvious that something needed to be let let out and in both cases you know uh, you know good things came from that conversations and kind of in one case they came back and said that they they've accepted their life and, and we're getting on with it um and getting on that doesn't sound right you know it, it it's not the end of life clearly for people who don't want to, it's not it's it's a challenge for many but the idea that uh, it's a tr- the idea of, that this is a trivial thing that you're going to get through life without even thinking about in future or that the p- pros are going to, you know, you can't balance having children with anything else. There's no equivalent. It's like either I'm going to have kids or I'm going to go on vacation twice a year. You know, we don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, although some might encourage that, um, you know, so I, I, I think 
back to the idea of awareness here, you know, what I've seen again is young people seeing the documentary and realizing that grief from childlessness is a very real thing to, to people is perhaps what it needs. I, I agree with you. I think if there's, if we're not in communities where we're seeing children um, being raised and connecting with parents, uh, that, that, uh, there's certainly a theory out there that it's like a muscle that doesn't develop. Uh, you know, if you if you're not in environments where you're seeing children, that you don't have that desire as quickly, and then it might you know desire might come when it's frankly too late. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thought I have just on that topic, and I have fallen into I fell into this trap a little. I don't say I fell into this trap. Maybe if, you know I temporarily thought this way. Let me say in my twenties. And then something really sort of, I don't know what it was that struck me, but I've noticed that most young people, and maybe this has always been the case, I think most young people think of their life up until the age of about 40 or 45. There's, there's a heavy over-prioritization and bias towards the first half of your life, mm -hmm. right? So if you're a 20-year-old, you will often think of your life up until, let's say, 45, maybe even 40. But... And, no, and everyone thinks about what they're going to do between, mm -hmm. let's say, 20 and 45. Very mm -hmm. few people spend much time thinking about the second half of their life. What are you going to do between 45 and 90? What's going to mm -hmm. be your meaning? What's going to be your purpose? What's going to bring you joy? What is all mm -hmm. of that? And the honest answer for most human beings, for all of human history, is the primary thing is family. Right? Yeah. If I look at my own family, I'm, I'm one of five. Um, my parents have 10 grandchildren. Lord willing, with uh, several more to come. And if I look at my parents who are now in their late 70s and late 60s, um, and they've, you know, my, my dad's a physician. He's had a 50-year medical career. He's achieved a lot. You know, my mom has achieved a lot. But if the, the thing that I see that makes them happy and makes them proud and keeps them going and keeps them young and keeps them moving and keeps them active, it's their children and now their, their yeah. grandchildren. Right. Yeah. I, I almost try to imagine I, I, imagine, I imagine a seven year old version of my dad who decided to be an eternal bachelor and never have children. Right. So what would have happened? Oh, he's a rich doctor who's living in a big house by, you know, by himself. And I'm just like, man, that would I, I, when I think of it that way, I'm like, yeah. Dude, that's that would that would really yeah. suck. Right. Because that's yeah. even having a good career. That's having you, you've got a great career. You've made yeah. money, this and this. But who are you sharing these resources with? What's what's your what's your legacy? Are you who are you raising and so on? And yes, there are things people can do to, you know, compensate and try to help these things. But when I look at people who are especially, let's say, over the age of 60 and I see who is happy and who's not and why um, so much of it, it becomes very apparent to me that so much of it is around family. And that's such a core thing. And I think that yeah. many, many young people, they, they just don't, they just don't think about that. They think of the next two decades and they're not thinking, okay, you know what? One day I'm going to be, I'm probably going to be 65 one day. I'm going to be 75 one day. I might be 85 one day. And what is yeah, my they, life going to look like at that point? You, you know, I'm a bit older than you. I'm 57. And the, 
fifties have been my best decade, you know, and there's reasons for that, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you still can do most of the things you did a, a younger, but you probably have more, uh, more time if, if your children are, you know, getting up there by that age as, as mine are. Um, and I'm looking forward to my sixties, you know, my, my gosh. Um, so I agree with the time span is, you know, we, we need to take a longer view. I also agree with the importance of, of grandchildren and family. I was lucky. I had 17 cousins and, you know, that, that childhood and the time for my grandparents, you know, with just, constantly cousins around uh, and you look at nations I, I, right now I had, over, I had over 50 first cousins <laughs> do you my remember dad, all their names my dad's one of 11 um, yeah. and my, my mom is one of seven so yeah we've got a really it, big family and it's, it's, it's very it's it's very nice. Now, one thing I, I I am a lifelong learner. I took a psychology class uh, a few summers ago, and uh, one of the facts that came up there um, was that as humans, if we're on our own for an extended period of time, no contact, we die. Whereas other primates like chimpanzees, etc., don't like it at all, but they don't die. That we're something is hardwired within us that we need connection to other people and communities and children, I think uh, you know, it appear, it would make sense to me, given our physiology and the fact that every single one of our parents and parents, 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 parents had children. There is something about having children that is both instinctive and human. And the idea, I, you know, again, I do support people who choose not to have children. There, and it does appear that that 5% or so do seem to go through life up to 40s, 50s at least, making their own friend groups and nothing have, not having that level of regret. But I do worry about even those people as they get older, um, you know, aging without children, their support groups for that too. Um, you know, it, it's it's not as easy as having family around. But, um, but I, 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 let me say one thing, though. I have a concern here that as societies – there's going to be increased fragmentation between those who have children and those who don't, you know, as we look at birth rates and there might even be some finger pointing and, you know, I've, I've read articles where people are, are saying, should we tax the childless? And I mean, and no, we actually need to all come together, need to embrace everybody here. Uh, bearing in mind one reason that majority of childless people had planned to have children. Um, but that's not the only reason. Everyone has a role within a community, and whether it's being a great aunt or our uncle or being a support to community, volunteer work. I mean, childless people are, are, are I think, the most uh, active in, in the volunteer world, uh, I have heard. There is a role for everybody, so let's not fragment, but equally, let's let younger people fully understand that, you know, to, to make the, the right decision for them. No one's, not, let's not force them to do that. We don't need to. I, I think... Exactly. I, I think we're, we're, we both very much agree of we want informed consent to use that term. Yeah. Right. Look, yeah. here are the facts. Here are the data. Here are statistics that you should really be aware of. And you, these yeah. are all the things you should consider. Here are trade offs. Here are potential pros, potential cons. Just plant that seed and then people make their decisions. But I think yeah. one of the big problems is lots of decisions are being made off of completely incorrect information and assumptions so people are yes. making poor decisions not because they don't have the right desires shall we say or because you know they're stupid or whatever it is but they just got they, they got the wrong they got the wrong information they didn't know yeah. the numbers they didn't know the necessary reality and yeah. then if you've got all that info i think it's very very i think i think we both agree it's a very different situation yeah. Of course. I mean, you, you, you yeah, that's documentary. A there's a huge difference between someone who's 55 years old and they decided, look, I know the deal. 
but for X, Y, and Z, I don't want to have children and that's my decision. That right. is a very, very different situation to someone who is 55 years old and they wanted to have kids, but they believed stuff that was wrong and they were sold false ideas and so on. And now they're regretful and they have this grief and perhaps some bitterness and resentment towards people who sold them. I've seen these people even in YouTube, YouTube comment sections on uh, some of the, your previous interviews, right? Where you have people saying like, look, I was, I was sold yeah. a lie. And now I'm X years old and this is the situation and I want to young, warn younger people about this potentiality. And I think that's, that's the ideal situation. And I think if people, you give people the real info, then cool, we can have conversations about it. We can think of potential things that can be done so that those who do want to have children, which is the majority, how, how can we make this easier? How can we make it more financially feasible for people to couple right. up? How can we make it so that, that, look, there's always going to be some trade-offs but how can we make it so that the trade-offs are not so severe that people are in a situation of um, desperation and they're making decisions not, not, not based on what they really want to do, but based on another type of coercion, shall we say? Um, yes. Yeah, I think, I think that's where we, where we really want to get to. And it's such a, it's such I, a cool I, yeah, I think. What? You know, I think we do agree. Absolutely. But the ideologists are not going to sit back. I mean, they're already, I'm being attacked online. There's already a website up there disputing some of the, uh, saying that unplanned childlessness doesn't exist. Stephen Shaw's wrong. Um, so they'll be out there. But it's, you know, uh, that means we're, we're winning the argument to some extent. And I, I think it's also, a, 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 it's going to become very obvious that they are ideologists if they keep, you know, just repeating the same thing over and over again and not acknowledging this. Mm. So before we wrap up, I have, I have two, two major questions. One, what's your favorite thing about being a father? I've never been asked that before. <sighs> Didn't think you would have. I, I, I don't know. And, and just to explain, I mean, I live in Tokyo. Uh, two of my children live in London. One's in New York. Um, we don't get together all that often. With time zones, I don't speak to them as often as I'd like. And uh, I'm a sadly a divorced dad. I, you know, I divorced not by choice. I said it's just career took me to a different continent um, from from where my ex wife wanted to live, and sadly that happened. Um, but there isn't a single moment of a day that you know I don't have to carry this. I don't know. It's just this internal satisfaction. It's not pride that that would be then you know that could be a negative thing. It's just this deep, deep satisfaction that I know my kids are out there doing their thing, you know, and whether they're suffering or whether they're happy. Of course, I hope they're not suffering, but just knowing that they're experiencing life, um, I, I don't know. It's just something to me deeply human. I I, I wouldn't be the same person without it, uh, despite that that distance. I don't yeah. know if that answered your question, but... Uh... Yeah, of course. No, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for some perfect answer. I mean, like I said, <laughs> I'm not a parent yet, but I said, having thought about this issue a lot, I actually once had a tweet, went, went viral maybe about three years ago, I think. And I said that the greatest form of activism that anybody can do is raising, bringing and raising good children, like raising good children is the greatest form of activism that anyone can do. Because if you think of the way that that ripples outward into the world, right? Even when, even when your time is up and you've passed away, but you have people that you have raised who are out there, multiple ones of them who are out there doing good things and creating things and building things and influencing other people in a positive direction and so on. And you think of the ripple effect of that. 
throughout society. Um, I'm like, that is the greatest form. That's the greatest form of activism. That's actually the best yeah. thing that someone can give to humanity. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think I think there's something very powerful about that, and I feel like it's genetically, biologically hardwired into us, and maybe it's hard to. It might be hard to explain. Right. It might be yeah. hard to sort of explain in a sort of rational and cerebral way, but I think we all, yeah. there's a very real reason why, why we have that impulse within us and why people have always had that. We're all part of a continuous unbroken chain of yes. reproduction. And yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's just ingrained in us. Yeah, I, 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 I do too. Um, I, I think in terms of raising children, um, you know, as a parent, there's a pressure to raise your children, you know, as well as everybody else, you know. But but one thing I think my generation got wrong um, was we kind of handed over you know, the keys, as it were, to, to the education system to raise our kids. Um, and, you know, that's coming to light more, perhaps more and more now. But I, I, I even mean in the past, it was a case of telling your kids to focus on studies. And as long as they're studying and getting their grades and, you know, they, that was enough. If I were raising kids again now, I'd put much more priority on not just time with them, I, uh, but but also ensuring that they had good friend groups, that they were doing lots of activity. Being kids, you know, I think childhood has been stripped away from um, children too much because the focus has been on getting the top grades possible. Life is about much, much more that, than top grades. And uh, so, you know, I, I think as a father, that's one thing I would change. I'd just try and, you know, just be a little bit more lighthearted with them and still tell them to study, of course, but not quite, <laughs> quite so much. Well, that's valuable, man. I know the uh, the biggest demographic that listens to this podcast is men between 24 and 45. I think that's about 70, 60 to 70 percent of the audience. So whether people are married, unmarried, parents, parents-to-be, Whatever the situation is, I, I think there have been so many gems and nuggets of wisdom right there as well, man. Stephen, I want to be respectful of your time. I could talk to you for, I, I, you're one guy I could, I could talk to forever. I'd love to have you on the podcast again in the future. But uh, where Likewise. can people find and follow you online? I have a website called birthgap.org. Uh, it's got like four or 5,000 members right now. You can message me on there. There's, you can access a documentary on there, but there's also a chat forum. There's lots of information, data, charts, maps, et cetera. Anybody interested in this topic? I'm on Twitter at Stephen J. Shaw, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Stephen J. Shaw. And uh, yeah, reach out to me. I try and respond to everybody uh, as best I can. Um, I'm interested in people's lives. So yeah. Awesome. Stephen, I love the work you're doing. I think it's uh, incredibly important and it's been a pleasure and an honor to speak to you. Thank you for having me on. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.